This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. kids will probably serve in the headline this was actually from uh, the bridge the strategy bridge which is a really interesting blog a lot of uh, former military and current military guys write on it it's a little drier sometimes than your standard opinion pieces but they're really good analysis and occasionally there's a gem this one's by a guy named robert mahar he's a west point grad still in the army um he uh, he's a strategist in the army he's got a master's in history from texas a&m and he wrote this article called quote uh Title is Turning the Corner in Afghanistan. He's being sarcastic. And this article is in response to a most recent foreign affairs issue, right? Foreign affairs being, you know, the ultimate in mainstream foreign policy magazines. In the November, December 2017 issue, uh, Kosh Sadat, who I'm not familiar with, and Stanley McChrystal, who I am familiar with, former commander of U.S. soldiers of all U.S. forces in Afghanistan, uh, they wrote an article in Foreign Affairs defending the ongoing state-building counterinsurgency project in Afghanistan as both right and necessary, quote, right and necessary. Robert Mahara, I'm not going to go through all his points, he tears this apart. And it's a shame that he has to. It's a shame we're still talking about this. It's a shame that former four-star generals who are otherwise appear to be intelligent people still have the gall to write articles arguing in favor of the war in Afghanistan, who have the gall to say that this is still worth fighting, that it's winnable. It's absurd. It, it's, it's past absurd. The articles and the argument, I'm sorry, the arguments that McChrystal used, Sadat and McChrystal used, are the most worn out arguments I've ever heard. We're entering year 18, folks, year 18 of the war in Afghanistan. Just about double as long as Vietnam. And I heard that war was kind of long. And still, the old tired arguments from General McChrystal. Here we go. Quote, a post-American Afghanistan is not a pretty picture. No shit, General. No shit. The current Afghanistan is not a pretty picture. The Afghanistan before we were there wasn't a pretty picture. Under the Soviets, it wasn't a pretty picture. It's a fucking mess. That's not the question. The question is, can the United States, with the resources available, measurably improve that place, A, and B, is it even in our interest to sacrifice all the money, blood, and treasure to do that? That's the issue. But no, same old worn-out arguments, right? It's the fear stuff. Make the American... Stay the course in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever the fuck... Because of fear. Well, if you don't stay in Afghanistan, then it's going to become a haven for terrorists. Ooh. Robert Mahara, man, i got to give this guy credit. I don't know where he's stationed, what he's doing. I really should reach out to him. He said, quote, To stay the course in Afghanistan would be more about what Americans fear than what they expect to achieve. Fear leading foreign policy is dangerous. Taking lead counsel from one's nightmares opens the door to a kind of forever war. Bravo, Robert, is what I want to say to that. Very good. I loved it. He says that turning the clock back to 2001 when the war started with circa 2011 level resources when I was there, when there was 100,000 Americans in Afghanistan, plus about 30 to 40,000 NATO troops, plus three to 400,000 Afghan troops that we trained. He says that turning the clock back to 2001 with the circa 2011 resources is an implausible proposition. Yeah, no shit. It absolutely is. And I'm glad that Robert Mahar brought that up because that's what gets me. We're using the same old tired Vietnam-type language. General Mattis, President Trump, they say things like, oh, General Nicholson, who used to be on the ground in Afghanistan, they say, oh, we need just a few thousand more American soldiers so we can, quote, here's the Vietnam language, turn the corner, you know, break the stalemate. So there's 9,800 there a couple months ago. We've added, what, 4,000 as part of this little mini-surge? 
And we're supposed to believe that's going to break the stalemate and turn the corner? I dropped bodies not breaking the stalemate, trying my hardest to break the stalemate when there was 100,000 of us in 2011. I killed Afghans and lost soldiers and still couldn't break the stalemate. There were 100,000 of us. 13,000 is going to do the trick? Thank God Robert Mahara took the time. I, I'm sorry he had to. I'm sorry he had to go through the emotional and intellectual energy to dispute this highly respected four-star general who was purportedly extraordinarily intelligent, and I'm sure he is. He's learning all the wrong lessons, though. Hell he's yes. Not, he's not widening his mind. He's not, he's not analyzing his experiences from a, from a different perspective. He's not broad enough for that. He's not broadening himself enough for that. Still arguing for this. Robert Mahara, last point I want to make. He says, decisive victory in Afghanistan has always demanded more tools than U.S. policymakers ever seriously countenanced. That seems true. You know, decisive victory in Afghanistan, which I don't even know what that would look like. But imagine I did know what it would look like. It would definitely demand more tools than we have, more money, more soldiers, than we either have or are willing to sacrifice. The question becomes, even if we did sacrifice all that, would it be enough? And number two, even if it was enough, was it worth it? Was it worth trillions of dollars and thousands of lives? Afghan and American and Dutch and Canadian and English and French. Remember, there are other people dying there on our behalf as part of NATO. But it's always there, man. It's the same argument. Fear of ungoverned spaces is seductive dogma, so says Robert Mahara. If we use the logic of General McChrystal and every other defender of the war in Afghanistan, if we use their favorite logic, which is, hey, we can't leave Afghanistan or you insert the country, because if we do, then terrorists will move in and we'll have another 9-11. That argument has been debunked so many times it's almost not worth doing again, but I guess we have no choice. In 2018, as we enter our 18th partial year of war in Afghanistan, we have to do it. The logic is flawed. There are terrorists potentially everywhere occupying their country, you know, in perpetuity because if we don't, there might be terrorists there. It, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a formula for forever war. And maybe the military-industrial complex, maybe the arms dealers, you know, uh, may, maybe the different companies that, uh, that name our college bowls like the Lockheed Martin Military Bowl that Army played in this year. Isn't that, fun? isn't that isn't that fun? You know, doesn't that just make you want to dig up Eisenhower from the grave so he can roll over in it a little? You know, uh, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Maybe that maybe they win, but no one else does. The Afghan people don't. The American soldiers don't. Anyway, uh, so uh, shame on you, uh, uh, retired General McChrystal, for still defending uh, this war and not showing the intellectual sort of energy and open-mindedness to, to rethink a failed policy. And, uh, and Robert Mahara, I, gotta, I, I, can, I, I congratulate you as a serving officer uh, for being willing, for having the guts to, in just five short pages, really take apart the argument of a respected retired four-star general. That takes guts. It does. It does. I, I... Isn't there a book signing or something McChrystal can be at instead of Instead of doing this, I'm sure he's he's got to have grandkids by now. Stanley, go find something else to do, man. It, 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 it's... I keep coming back to, and this is just a little a little note here in the end, the uh, hearing about the Pentagon program that um, paid or brought on active duty and retired military officers during the initial days of the Iraq War to go on CNN, NBC, what have you. And, and talk up the war, and talk up the administration's policies. As a young man, I thought that military, especially leaders, but military members, were supposed to be unbiased. That they, you know, their actions were supposed to be determined by their chain of command, and that they didn't, they didn't allow other things to get in the way, because how do you ever accomplish your mission if all these other things aren't in your way? Yeah, We've definitely gotten politicized. All of us. I heard a comedian the other day, this funny guy named Ryan Hamilton. He said, uh, "He said, you know, I'm not normally a political comedian, but uh, now I am. You know, <laughs> yes. meaning since the Trump administration, like you have to be. I think our military is politicized. Um, shit, I'm an example of that. Although I'm I'm leaving the military, but uh, the generals are. Both parties trot out 
50, 60 generals to sign, you know, sign petitions in favor of one candidate or another. Uh, we had a three-star general, Mike Flynn, screaming, lock her up at the Republican convention. And then we had uh, a, a four-star Marine general, John Allen, you know, at the Democratic convention. And he was yelling and screaming about defeating ISIS, too, on the stage. I mean... What's happening? Where are we? What world are we living in where that's the case? You know, hey, look, General Crystal is a retired general. He's a bright guy. He uh, he's a brave guy. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from this dude. Walked through some of the most dangerous areas of Afghanistan because a sergeant sent him an email, basically daring him to do it in Afghanistan. That story is in the book The Operators by Michael Hastings. And he came like days later and he walked that ground on a real patrol, like an infantryman. He was a four-star general. So I'm not taking away from the general bona fides of, of, of General McChrystal. What I am saying is, uh, obviously he's highly politicized. So am I, I just happen to disagree with him. And I think it's a, I think it's a weak argument. And, uh, and we, have to, we have to call it out. But but you're right that there's a level of politicization that is scary. If this was South America or Africa, I would say we're in we're in store for a coup. Um, I hope that American institutions are strong enough where that's not the case. But uh, the signs are are extraordinarily uh, banana republicy, if, if for lack of a better word. No, I I I. I... I guess I guess I just think about how does the average person find any news to trust? You know, is that we, you and I know of sources, places to go that are non-military to get information on what's going on with our national security. But when I was a young man and I turned on CNN, I never had any of those thoughts. When I saw a general on, you know, doing his his little bit for Bush, I never I never thought about that. I thought, you know, they're, they're free and independent. You know, that they they make those choices that if leaders don't like what's happening above them that they go up there and they you know everybody everybody bitches to their superiors well at a certain point we just all start following in line yeah absolutely uh, you know if, uh, if we're on mea culpas i'll be the first one to say look i wasn't strong enough against the war in iraq in 2003 uh i wasn't asking the right questions when i was a 19 year old cadet in uh, 2002 you know but we we grow and we learn and we hopefully uh, mature intellectually and uh, and then we do know what to look for because knowing what to look for is half the battle because a lot of times you just miss stuff and yeah. I know I used yeah. to I probably still do just less of it because I'm always paying attention I'm always pissed off <laughs> I sometimes worry about if I miss crap I'll sit there like this guy I know there's something going on and I just I, I just didn't see it yet so I'd certainly be happier if I missed more you know Kind of yeah, less to be upset yeah. about. Uh, blissful ignorance, it's a thing. It's a real thing. Uh, I don't recommend it as far as the health of the Republic, but for personal happiness, I think it's great. Yes, yes, yes. We love the ignorance is bliss. <laughs> yeah, so. I think we got a, I think, I, I think we have a, uh, we've elected a president based on that uh, philosophy, actually, it turns out. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. I got to be careful with that sort of language, I suppose. Um, remember, uh, as always, listeners, uh, these uh, are my own opinions in an unofficial capacity and do not reflect the official policy or opinions of the Army or the Department of Defense. Okay. Ass covered. <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's see. Well, let's, let's talk about like a happy topic, like white supremacy in the military. Henry, what do you think? Let's, let's really, sounds great, let's, man. Let's really turn the corner and, and get everyone excited about a, a, a really positive uh, story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, do, do you want to get started or do you want me to? Uh, you, you get started, actually, yeah. I think okay. I'll let you take a lead and then I'll, I've got like six or eight points, nothing crazy. Much less than usual because we're always over. So, um, when I wanted to start doing research about white supremacy, I, it, 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 there are so many articles being written about it right now. It, it, it's just a... It's, I wouldn't call it an information overload because so much of it is redissected or re repeated, but it, it's just a flood of stuff. So peeling through where things were was a, was a little difficult for me. But I came on to a story about a guy named Dylan Hopper. Dylan Hopper was, is a former active duty Marine who was known to be a white supremacist during his service, um, specifically when he was a recruiter for three years in Ohio. Um, when put in a position of power like this, I wonder how many other neo-Nazis became Marines because of this man, 
Or at the very least, did Hopper help prevent more diverse candidates from joining the Marine Corps? Now, the reason that I bring up Mr. Hopper is that he was supposed to attend the Charlottesville rally that killed Heather Hayer, but he ended up missing it due to his mother's funeral. Now, James Fields, the man who actually killed Heather Hayer, I just learned this, this last week, he's actually a basic training washout. I didn't know that. I don't know that we, I, I don't think veteran would be the appropriate term for him. Um, he probably got one of those non, it's, it's a general something, I can't remember what it is, in, tra in training. Got, he got his military service annulled, for lack and, of a better term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways, um, back, to, um, back to Mr. Hopper. He left the uh, USMC in January 2017 as a staff sergeant. Contacted after he left service, he claimed to be the leader of a group called Vanguard America, a neo-Nazi group that Mr. Fields marched in when, when he killed Heather Hare. But when asked about it, um, Mr. Hopper pushed back really hard on the notion that James Fields was a full member of the organization. Now, seeing the picture of James myself standing there marching with a riot shield bearing a Vanguard America logo, I don't buy any of his fucking excuses about poor organization or the leadership at the event, they had to know who this guy was. And maybe he was the scapegoat, even within their little white supremacist community. But if, if you bring somebody into your group, you guys are, are freaking responsible for them. And not that I'm starting up white supremacist groups, I'm just talking about the nature of who you take credit for or who you attach your wagon to. Uh, yeah, Trump, Trump, uh, Trump voters look out, I guess. So anyway, um, I'll find my spot here I lost. Um, Hopper changed his name from Dylan Irizarry to Dylan Hopper in 2006. In a later interview with Splinter News, Hopper abruptly ended the interview when the interviewer informed him that she knew he had changed his name, um, which at the time he was denying that his real last name was Hopper. Now, I asked myself if the name change came about to help him blend in more easily within his own white supremacist community. Irizarry is a Basque name that comes from northern Spain and southern France, and it's actually held by many people of Puerto Rican descent as well. If, yeah, absolutely, God for fucking bid. If people could easily Google or otherwise research his last name and see its origins, as I did researching the story, I would see maybe his reasoning for changing his name. It happening in 2006 tells me that his introduction to white supremacy came far before his assignment to in Ohio as a recruiter. It's also something that people can use to throw off law enforcement by having a legal second name that you can provide to them if an investigation is running. Um, now I say all of this under the current status that under a military times poll conducted by Leo Shane, one in four service members had seen evidence of white nationalism within their ranks. But even more alarming than that, more than 5% stated that they wished to have the option of listing Black Lives Matter as an extremist organization. The poll included civil disobedience and U.S. protest movements, but that wasn't sufficient for some who took the poll. Several people left comments remarking that white nationalism is an extremism, or that there's a clear difference between white nationalists and racists. All I'm hearing is fucking semantics. Dylan Hopper tried that as well, using different names and trying to create distance between his organization and the murderous actions of somebody like James Fields. But it all begins down the same path. Absolutely. I think that's an interesting sort of opening hook or opening vignette. Because I think what we're trying to ask today is, you know, why is there a connection whether mental or actual connection between military service and paramilitary white supremacy, you know. And anecdotally, there are a lot of veterans who've been involved in these sort of things. Uh, here's one. Remember Timothy McVeigh in the 90s, right? He was a yep. Gulf War veteran who killed uh, over 100 people in the Oklahoma City bombing. In 2014, Fraser Glenn Miller... Uh, right near where I live now, uh, shot and killed three people at a um, in Overland Park uh, at like a Jewish community center. Although I don't, don't think any of the victims were actually Jewish, um, you know there there have been uh, a lot of instances where high-profile white nationalist extremists have been military members. Does that mean that you and I think there's a massive white supremacy problem in the army? Well, maybe not. You know, I'm not 
think we're ready to say that. I don't think we have the empirical evidence to draw the direct connection. Are we saying that everyone in the military is white supremacist? <laughs> certainly not. Okay, uh, And it's certainly improved even since the 1990s. But what we do know is the service chiefs, the joint chiefs and military leadership is very concerned about this. And they are like some of the first people to tweet out anti-racism uh, type social media posts because they don't want this in their military. They recognize it as a cancer. But I got to ask another question and it's not comfortable, but why did the majority of majors Successful, successful mid-level officers chosen above their peers to go to the command and general staff college. Why did a majority of those people in my class support Donald Trump for president? I mean, that, that raises some tough questions about white nationalism and the military. I can tell you who didn't support Donald Trump was the black female, the sole black female in my class. She didn't. But a room full of white males by and large, we're supporters of President Trump. Now, is he an outright white supremacist? Is he a card-carrying member of the white nationalist movement? No. But there are connections, and Charlottesville is just one of them. But the military has a long, sort of difficult history with white nationalism. I was looking at this article from 2014, and it said that the return of veterans from combat appears to correlate more closely with Ku Klux Klan membership than any other historical factor. Quote, Military veterans facing significant challenges reintegrating into their communities could lead to the potential emergence of terrorist groups or lone wolf extremists carrying out violent attacks. The agency was concerned, this is the Department of Homeland Security in 2009, in an official report. The Department of Homeland Security was concerned that right-wing extremists will attempt to recruit and radicalize returning veterans in order to boost their violent capacities. Capabilities. Well, we know this, right? We know that people who are emotionally struggling, people who are financially struggling, people who are working to reintegrate into society, veterans meet all of those criteria oftentimes, are vulnerable to white nationalist movements, are vulnerable to hate groups of all sorts, not just white, admittedly. That quote jumped out at me. That's a Homeland Security report in 2009. That's not a report from 1867. This is today. You know, there's a historic role um, of white nationalism in the military. It's there. I think we're fighting it. I think that the senior leaders in the services um, really seem to be attempting to, uh, to stop this. But I think we can broaden it further. And maybe we can take the discussion in this direction. You know, race and the army, right? Is, is race an issue in the army? You know, are, are there racial stereotypes about soldiers? And I think they are. What's, what's your experience been with that, Henry, if you don't mind me asking? I mean, have you seen issues with race or stereotypes with race that have crept into the military culture? I have. I, 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 I recognized in, in prepping for this story that there were so many signs of things that I realize now that I saw that I didn't recognize them as signs of it back then. Um, you know, often you'd have the guys that would have Confederate flags, lots of Confederate stuff in their rooms. Um, I never saw an outright display of it you know someone wearing a shirt owning a poster saying you know and and to my to my knowledge i don't remember anybody ever uh saying anything specifically as you know nasty stuff but there were there were the undertones there you know when you have when um I, i'm just spitballing here but we're throwing out with the command staff for for a company you know if if the if the commander, the first sergeant, the XO, and most of ops are all white guys, and then you have one white or one black ops sergeant, to me, I, I don't see how we can't. How do we? How do we breach through that? How do we? You know, because because clearly there's a, a a right wing culture among the military, and some white nationalist stuff goes hand in hand with that. The but. I know that there are guys that are normal, honest, right-wing guys that want to have nothing to do with white nationalism. It's not any of the people who are trying to parrot, well, there's a difference between white supremacists and white nationalism. Fuck you, no, there isn't. It's the same thing. Your organization may be a little more flowery. You may be a little more Milo Yanovich, whatever the hell is, I can't remember, uh, Yiannopoulos, that, that right. asshole. Um, and granted, he would say anything that he wanted to, but he did know how to turn a phrase when it came to pushing his white supremacist beliefs. Now, the question that I have is, 
if, let's say somebody, let's say a soldier identifies somebody in their chain of command as a white supremacist through their words, through their actions, through stuff they saw theirs, what would you do? I mean, where would you start? Where would you, I mean, I, I, and especially if you're a person of color, if you're, you or me, if I was back in the service or you're still in at the moment, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would have done as an E5, as a sergeant. You know, I, I, I'm sure I would have figured out someone to talk to, to try to understand what happens. But again, they're, they're also political beliefs. You know, is that can you throw somebody out of the military or punish them or talk down to them because you're there's your subordinate about what you hold as mistaken political beliefs? And I think therein lies the problem is that the, the combination of the hatred and the politics together, it allows some people a pass. And I wonder about policies coming up that like, you know, that the military, I was going to say thankfully, but it's not, I don't know that it's thankfully. The military has a much tighter lid on what people do in their personal lives than the average boss. And they have to because of the nature of the mission. To me, it would almost be worth it to have regulations that if somebody was espousing these kind of views, I wouldn't consider them compatible with military service. Somebody who, you know, I'm not talking about somebody who said something stupid one time. I'm talking about somebody who were, again, words, actions, posters on the walls of their room. This is what they believe. And they, uh, excuse me, they spread it to other people. That's where the real rub comes in, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough and it's a fine line between, you know, right-wing political beliefs, which are, which are totally legal and protected under the First Amendment, even if you're in the military. And when you take that one step too far and it does become white nationalism, when it does become paramilitary or, or hate group oriented, a lot of this really does derive in my mind from our continued problem with talking about race in the United States. And, and the military is nothing if not a microcosm, or at least it's supposed to be a microcosm of the United States society. You know, I come from the armor community, specifically cab units, which... Um, up until the point where I, where I was still on the line, there were still no women in those units. And um, and almost all the soldiers, in my experience, and the stats sort of back this up, were white males. There were, you know, don't get me wrong, I had black soldiers, I had Hispanic soldiers, but percentage-wise, in the combat arms, um, the MOS is like 11 Bravo Infantry, 19 um, Delta Scout, etc., uh, were heavily populated, especially the infantry, with uh, with white males from rural areas. That's oh, yeah. just that's just a, a truism, and I think you probably saw that. So, but what happens is stereotypes develop, and I used to hear soldiers say things like, "Oh, well, you know, uh, black soldiers don't want to serve in combat arms; they're pussies. You know, all they care about is uh, learning a trade, and they do the easy stuff. All the supply sergeants are black, but all the eleven Bravos, all the eleven Bang Bang infantrymen are white." No, of course, neither of those things is true. Although there was there were skewed numbers, right, in those areas. But what that that sort of maybe seemingly harmless talk, it really does develop into an us versus them culture, and it places more value on well, white soldiers who choose to be in the infantry are somehow more valuable or more soldierly or more veteran worthy than you know the black supply sergeant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's real. I mean, that's out there. Um, when I taught at West Point. I was amazed by the power of race and the racial debate in 2000. I was there 14, 15, and 16. Um, nothing got white male cadets who I taught more fired up and angry than talk about affirmative action. And the reason affirmative action was important is because West Point does actually follow an affirmative action policy. It admits it. It's part of its... Uh, it's, it's part of its... Um, recruiting practices, it, it's, it's part of its acceptance practices because the military academy is not afraid to say that we need our officers to look a little bit more like our enlisted ranks and therefore we need to find qualified African-American, Hispanic-American candidates and try to, uh, you know, try to level the balance. Well, nothing gets white male cadets more upset than the notion of affirmative action, which is always interesting because they made it, right? They, they made the cut and yet they're still really, really angry on the behalf of those who didn't, I suppose. But there are cultural distinctions there. For example, um, a larger percentage of African-American cadets at the academy are also recruited athletes. And generally, the standards academically for the recruited athletes are slightly lower than that of, you know, just a standard cadet who is not an athlete. 
So this culture develops where many of the white male cadets feel like they are actually, they're the embattled minority and that all these special preferences are going to the affirmative action or athletically recruited African-Americans and you start to see the division. And you see it culturally and who they choose to sit with at optional dinners, um, socially associate themselves with, um, and, and, and he really, it, it, it affects so many other issues and, and, and it, I think it informs the voting choices and the political beliefs of military men, and, and I think the, stati the statistics probably back this up, that white males within the military, just like in society at large, are, are ever more likely to support uh, extreme right-wing candidates and uh, our current president. And that's their right, of course. But it's interesting, and it raises a lot of questions. When I was teaching at West Point, one other story, the, I believe it was 16... African-American females who graduated in 2000 and, uh, 2016, that's right, 2016, they took a picture together in their uniforms. It's a, it's a tradition that, for example, the whole football team takes a picture. They're called their old core photos. They, they take black and white pictures, so they look like they're from like the 1800s uh, as groups. So like the whole chess club will take a picture together and the whole football team will take a picture together, right? And so all the African-American females, there was only about 16 of them out of 1,000 graduates, so that tells you something, took a picture with their fists in the air. You may have seen the photo. I have indeed. It was a big news. Boy, did that fire up my cadets. I mean, we could talk, I mean, it was hard to teach history because all they wanted to talk about for weeks was that photo. And you can guess how everyone lined up. White males were by and large highly offended. I've heard talk like, well, what if white cadets got together and, you know, wore clan hoods or uh, put swastikas uh, in their photo. And I, and I would say, well, that is a really, really big stretch, and it's a false analogy, I think, and uh, false equivalence, but it really fired people up. And I had to actually explain and educate these very bright students, otherwise they wouldn't be at West Point, on the difference between the black power, black nationalism movement, and the white power, white nationalism movement, because they're different. Oh, yes. Historically, they are different. Stokely Carmichael saying, you know, black is beautiful and we need black power and we need to empower our local communities. Look, you may disagree with some of his political ideas, but it is far different from the outright near genocidal language of white nationalism and white power. Because the power structure has always been slanted towards whites in the United States that there's a lot, there's something very different about saying white power than black power. One is... Uh, is, is complex and it's cultural when I hear I'm talking about black power and the other is is really it, it, it's it's downright paramilitary and it's downright hate group now I'm not saying there aren't any black nationalist hate groups there are they're just fewer and further between and the term black power um, is far less nefarious than the term white power historically that can be empirically be true, proven and historians generally agree on this I just I keep <clears throat> I keep coming uh, just about the about the the ways to stifle some of this ignorance the ways to how you know um, a, a good example would be what I mentioned earlier about my time in the service and that I did not see many of the signs. What about when you're in basic training or maybe you're in processing at a new duty station that something that you go through is a briefing on major local um, extremist groups. Um, you know, where, where I used to live in Idaho, I was born in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, they had a, neo, a, a skinhead neo-Nazi compound that was there and it was huge. And for years, you know, that, that filled up our newspaper with all kinds of articles. They didn't really do much of anything. They'd go have a parade like once a year or something like that. But the focus on the fear part of it b before the compound got closed down was just overwhelming. Um, but but I know you know we, we talked earlier about the you know the the, the naivete of, of of that we had going into military service, that it, one you can't you can't teach people to have common sense or to 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 take their time with things so that they notice the things that we're noticing because the the noticing that we do isn't we didn't learn it we well we not book learning we learned it from experience, and if people don't come in with that they're not going to see it that way. 
However, for somebody like me, with that inexperience back in the day, I would have loved to have a thing like, okay, well, yeah, I live here at Fort Lewis, and yeah, okay, up in Spanaway, there's this thing, and there's this other thing. It's like, just stay away, but at least give you the signs. If there are people, you know, or certain symbols that they use in that area, like stupid Vanguard America that I talked about earlier. But, you know, I, I guess I just, I go back to how do we get it into the minds of everyday, you know, everyday soldiers, you know, and, and that, you know, we both know how much soldiers work, how many hours, and how many fucking hours there are in the day. So I'm sure that, you know, there's the big chorus of people that if we want to talk about this more, nope, we've already got too much extra training. It's not worth it. We can't possibly set aside 30 minutes for this very important thing. Um, and also it might give people the courage to come forward. It might say that, you know, hey, I didn't notice this for the first two years. This guy was my NCO, but he has this nasty looking poster on his wall. And I now know that that means he's affiliated with this local movement. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure that person would have no fucking idea what to do next, but at least they know that there's a problem. But I, but the, I, sorry, I, 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 to everybody listening, I, I suffer from a, from a, a terminal form of cognitive dissonance. It's going to take me any moment. Just wait. Um, but, uh, it's it just that I, I want to be able to put out there if we have an idea, the best idea we have for something like this, because, you, you know how easily unit cohesion breaks down, especially on the smaller level, on teams, on squads, on platoons, when there's shit like this going on. And, and it may not involve 28 out of 30 people, but 28 out of the 30 people plus the other two, they're all fucking dealing with it right now. And that means that they're usually not dealing with something that, that may, may potentially be more important. So, right. Absolutely. You mentioned cohesion, how easily it can break down. Something we have to consider here is the historic role of the military as a force for, sometimes uneven, but as a force for social change. Oftentimes, the military is on the front end, at least compared to many of the states, specifically former Confederate states, how, how we're usually on the far end of things like race and gender relations. I mean, the United States military integrated far too late, but the United States military integrated in 1948, by executive order from Truman. And, you know, Jim Crow lived on in the South for another 20 years. So you were better off being in the federal service of the state, of the of the federal state, than you were uh, living or working in the state of Alabama, for, for example. Um, although I'm going to lay off Alabama since they did uh, at least not elect Roy Moore, so I'll, I'll say Louisiana, <laughs> just to give yes. Alabama a break. They deserve good, it. Good job, Alabama, definitely, yes. But, look... White nationalism, insider threats, paramilitary white nationalist organizations are toxic. Any hate groups that can slip their way inside the military are toxic. They're toxic because this is the military is supposed to be a diverse, unifying, collective institution, and it doesn't take much to tear that down, to tear the edifice down. And any sort of division and hate, specifically racial, because it's such a powerful dividing line, is absolutely uh, terrible for the U.S. military. And there are threats, right? There are credible ins insider threats, and there is neo-Nazi infiltration in the military. Again, I'm not saying that it's widespread, but, you know, we have to think about this. Um, you know, in the 1980s and 90s, there was a lot of concern about white supremacists and neo-Nazis encouraging their followers to enlist in the Army Marine Corps so they could get the skills to overthrow what some white nationalist organizations were then calling the Zog, the Zionist occupation government, or the Zog machine. And... When I entered West Point for basic training in July of 2001, there was actually a, uh, a fellow cadet, a new cadet, who came in and was eventually thrown out because one of the first things they do on the first day, besides making you sign your life away and take an oath and you know uh, put, on, uh, put on the silly uh, uniform for the day and get your head shaved, another thing that they did was check you for tattoos. And they found that this individual that entered um, my class at West Point was, uh, I think he was from the Pacific Northwest, so not far from where you grew up. I uh, can't remember the state, but he was loaded up with like neo-Nazi tattoos. And it, it, we come to find out that uh, this guy may well have been an infiltrator into the military trying to acquire skills to go back to his white nationalist neo-Nazi organization and, and, and use those. And there have been incidents I mean, there, there is a, a checkered record for the military, and I'm not even blaming the military. I'm just saying it's an issue we have to pay attention to. Um, Wade Page was a former U.S. Army soldier, and uh, he opened fire at a Sikh temple in Wisconsin. 
in, uh, I can't remember what year, this is three or four years back, at a Sikh temple, and he murdered six people. Um, in 1995, a, uh, a skinhead paratrooper named James Burmeister uh, killed a couple in a racially motivated shooting in Fayetteville, right outside of Fort Bragg. Uh, and in 2008, so not that long ago, 10 years ago, uh, a study commissioned by the Justice Department found that uh, half of all right-wing extremists in the United States had some form of military experience. Now, again, it's like the rectangle and square thing. Not every soldier is a right-wing extremist, but it seems that many, many, many right-wing extremists are veterans or are former soldiers, and that's something to be taken seriously. So all of this informs my final point, which is I want to know why did the service chiefs, why did the Joint Chiefs, the head of the Air Force, the head of the Marine Corps, head of the Navy, head of the Army, why did they all distance themselves from Donald Trump in the wake of Charlottesville? Why were they so careful? Why were they so quick to tweet out? No one said they had to do that, but they were all so quick after Trump's very toxic, very uh, controversial statements about Charlottesville. They all tweeted out, um, no, this is, and some of them spoke, this is not our values. We, um, we abhor uh, hate groups of any sort. We specifically abhor white supremacy in the military. Why did they do this? I would argue the reason they distanced themselves from Trump and the reason that they did this is because they are increasingly worried about the politicization of the military and they uh, realize that the soldiers they're trying to recruit grew up in America where white nationalism is no longer acceptable where hate groups are seen as utterly unacceptable. They realize how toxic this is. They realize that in unifying collective institutions like the army, there's, a, you know, there's no place for this. Because the military has a checkered past, right? We talked about the 82nd Airborne Soldier in 95. Uh, well, in 1986, Reagan Secretary of Defense Casper Weinberger specifically ordered the military to crack down on white nationalist groups, and he ordered a purge because there were seen to be so many. And then there was another purge ordered uh, by Secretary of Defense after Timothy McVeigh uh, blew up the Oklahoma City building in the mid-90s. So I think the first motivation, and this really comes from a really interesting article I read by Andrew Exum from uh, August of 2017. He said the first motivation of the Joint Chiefs in distancing themselves from President Trump is that the U.S. military has long struggled with hate groups, specifically white supremacists in its ranks, right? Specifically in combat units in the Army and Marine Corps in the 80s and 90s. So there's, there's a checkered past that they don't want to repeat, right? That's number one. And the second motivation, this is interesting, is that it's the same motivation that led so many corporate leaders to also abandon the president that week. Quote, business leaders, and, and by extension military leaders, are risk averse. They prioritize stability and the status quo. What has changed is the definition of the status quo. In other words, the military wants to attract the best and brightest young Americans, just like the corporate world wants to attract the best and brightest young American workers. In order to do that, they need to be seen as being friendly towards gays, lesbians, transgenders, people of all races and all religions. Because if we exclude any group, then we're, we're lowering the pool of talent that could come into the military. This, I think, helps to explain why the Joint Chiefs take it so seriously and spoke out so uh, quickly about racism and Charlottesville and how there's no place for white nationalism in the army. It's an interesting moment in our history where the military was the more progressive organization and the four-star flag officers at the top of all the services took a more progressive stand on race and racial uh, exclusion than the president of the United States. That's fascinating. Uh, there was this one other quote from Andrew Exum's article, and really the quote is from Fred Kaplan, who's a noted right-wing neoconservative. He wrote, Fred Kaplan did, in Slate, quote, if we lived in a different sort of country, this could fairly be seen as a prelude to a military coup. Fred Kaplan, who I'm not a fan of, uh, he essentially is saying, and it's interesting, I don't agree with him, but I think he brings up a reasonable point. He says, these joint chiefs jumping out and actually speaking more progressively about race than the president and sort of distancing themselves from the president and taking this step could be seen as a prelude to a coup in any other society. And maybe there's reason for alarm. Maybe when the president is on such a different page than the service chiefs on an issue as big as white nationalism, white supremacy, and issues of race in America, what does that tell us about where we are? And I don't know, to me it takes it full circle. The joint chiefs get it.
You know, I'm a longtime critic of defense policy and not everything I say is always positive towards the defense establishment. But the reality is in this instance, the Joint Chiefs get it. They understand that in order to get the best talent, there could be no place for white supremacy in the ranks. And they also remember how bad it was in the 80s and in the 90s when there was a lot of infiltration happening by neo-Nazi groups into the military. I don't want to be the military that I saw on the Ken Burns documentary about Vietnam a few weeks ago where there was a picture of an American... Um, armored personnel carrier APC M113, you know, plowing over some Vietnamese jungle with a Confederate flag hanging out of the back of it, probably driven by some Southern soldier or Southern NCO who was the, the truck commander. You know, I don't want to be that military anymore. I don't think we are. And I think the Joint Chiefs have the right idea, but this is something you have to keep an eye on. It, it, it's interesting, The you mentioned about it coming full circle, that the Probably the flag officers that we're talking about right now are the guys who were second lieutenants back in between 80 and 90, you know, some, some, somewhere in there. And I don't know how long even even uh, Mattis has been in service, but in mentioning about the progressive moves made by our military, this year has been a banner year for the military as far as that goes in, in a bunch of different places. So, Guys, listen to us, please know is that the, we, we, we see both the good and the bad. You know, that there there's, that, it, but it's really hard when there's these kind of things to serve. You mentioned earlier about uh, the pool of talent, you know, not wanting, to, not wanting to remove anybody from that. The moment you said that, I had the thought about a pool of comfort. And that if we see, you know, if a squad of 10 soldiers and there are three, um, three people of color in the squad and one gets removed very specifically because they know that it was a matter of color, but they're not necessarily the same ethnicity, but they know that their ticket is, is punched, it, it, you know, if, if, if that's what, what's happening in there and if it involves race. And so there are going to be a lot of people, a lot of intelligent people, a lot of very athletic people, a lot of people with a great combinations of those two things that might want to join the military, but stories like uh, what we've been talking about today are going to say, no, I, it, to be stuck in a place where you could not get away from somebody who, who's a racist, possibly, you know, I, I could see people taking a pass on that. I, I would hope that those people don't. I would hope that our military continues to lead our country in diversity. And if we keep doing that over time, and our military does that because it does kind of pull the country at times in certain directions maybe there is a chance in terms of things like global warming because we are going to eventually see an uptick we're, we're already seeing it a little bit but we're going to see a much bigger uptick in training deaths in non-combat deaths in things that involve ways that scientists can accurately attach to climate change but those minds are needed and those diverse minds are needed to be able to do those things and that you know we need you know I know we've mentioned before about that, you know, some people look down on the military, you know, some people think it's a lesser job or something that you choose to do because you don't have any other option. And that may be the case for some people, but to others, the military is a wonderful thing. That doesn't mean that it's used correctly. That doesn't mean that, that what we're talking about isn't, isn't true, but we care about the military. That's why we do this. That's why we make this podcast is that we care about what's happening. And I would have been mortified if that happened to one of my soldiers, if one of my soldiers had been treated by a, a, even a subordinate. You know, actually, even worse sometimes. Maybe somebody has a female NCO or they got a black NCO and the four mafia just can't have, have it for some reason. And they just keep giving them shit and messing with them and not allowing them to get their, their fucking job done. Okay, Absolutely. I'm starting. I'm starting. No. Starting to go on and on here a little bit. I like it. I like it, and it's 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 so, it's so huge. I like the term you use, the, the the comfort zone. We need to create a military. We need to maintain a military that is attractive to people of a diversity of experiences, diversity of classes, races, religions, and sexual orientations. Because only in that way are we going to ensure that we get the best talent. It is not healthy to have a military that is all one color, all one gender, or all comes from one type of society. That's not, that's not healthy. We need the military to reflect America, and it needs to do so in cultural orientation, religious beliefs, uh, as well as ethnicity and race, because 
those factors are they're not the main determining factor in your life but they are a major factor in the way people tend to see the world and we need diverse opinions and ideas uh, if we don't have that then the military is going to become an echo chamber and again i do applaud for the joint chiefs after the charlottesville incident for stepping forward and uh, and doing the right thing i hope that'll continue and i hope that we don't have many other occasions where we need the joint chiefs to do the right thing and thereby embarrass the commander-in-chief which in a sense i think this incident reflected absolutely absolutely and hopefully that if in just just over three years now um mr trump is is removed from office that if the military continues to do these things on a even on, a, on its own smaller scale that if we get a better president in three years maybe he or she can bring that forward a little bit more um and and it's not it's 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 not a it's not a line it's not a you know the, the military being diverse as it is it's more diverse than america is there you right. see more walks of life more people more all, all, all of it so it, it it i think that it really could be um a great thing in the era of trump as far as how its organization goes you know we've we talk we go on and on about missions about the deaths and injuries but as far as organization goes as far as a way for people to get along and work together absolutely yeah great great points and, and really a great way of taking it full circle i think this is an important issue we wouldn't have chosen to uh, to do the lead story on on this issue if we didn't think it was important and, uh, and again, I hope that the listeners can see that this isn't, um, this isn't a simple axe to grind podcast that has one set view on every issue. This, this, we see the good and the bad. Um, we'll critique defense policy when we think it's appropriate, but we'll also uh, praise military leaders when we think that is appropriate. And this is one of those cases. So we need to keep working on this. We need to follow the lead uh, of some of our senior leaders who seem to get it and, yes, uh, and yes. keep an eye on this so that it doesn't continue to become an issue because... Look, since the election in 2016, most empirical statistics show that there has been a rise in neo-Nazi and white nationalist activity. So we got to yep. keep an eye on it because, like that stat said, you know, 50% of uh, white nationalist terrorist attacks or white nationalist domestic terrorist attacks, 50% uh, of those people did have some sort of military service, which is far higher rate than the civilian populace at large. So we have to keep an eye on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And guys, please uh, let us know your questions. Let us know your comments about this. We want to, you know, that there's so many views on a complicated issue like this and not that we would never want you to chime in, but please hit us up on Twitter, hit us up on Facebook, uh, fortress, fortress on a hill at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, listen, it's been great talking about this and, uh, you know, let, let's keep the conversation up. We look forward to your emails and, uh, and we'll be, We'll be tackling some more headlines and some more issues in the coming weeks. And, uh, and I think we're going to talk about Vietnam, right, and the lessons of Vietnam and how it informs uh, the war in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and whoever the fuck we're else uh, these days. It seems like we're at war everywhere. But, uh, you know, keep listening, keep subscribing, and uh, please review. Yep, thanks, guys. It's been a pleasure. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read, and remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.